Hello Pod, I'm Chris Hewitt and welcome to the Empire Podcast, which this week is sponsored by O2's Go Think Big, which brings you valuable career advice, amazing insider contacts and exclusive tips to set you up for your dream career. Be sure to check out gothinkbig.co.uk for online tools, features and one-of-a-kind work experience opportunities. On the Empire Podcast this week, we Netflix and chill with Carrie Fukunaga, director of Beasts of No Nation. We review the 24th Bond movie, Spectre, and as usual movie news and nonsense on the movie podcast. I still can't help but wonder what Sam Smith's Bond theme would have sounded like if he'd taken 21 minutes to write it. Just an extra minute, Sam might have made all the difference. Hello, Pod. I'm Chris Hewitt. Welcome to the Empire Podcast. This week, I'm joined by two, no, wait, three colleagues of such lethal cunning. First up is our geek queen, a lady who spent Back to the Future Day this week trying to affix a flux capacitor to her dragon so she can travel back in time and watch Supernatural from the beginning, which I think is true. Isn't it, Helen O'Hara? That's exactly what you did. It is, and then I remembered I have all the Blu-rays and DVDs, so I could just watch them anyway. Aren't they in many ways like a time machine? They are. So like that. There was a news story this week that must have made you very happy, which combined the Gilmore Girls and Go Fuck Yourself. Yes, you I will be coming to that in the news section, uh, but I am thrilled about it. Okay, that's a teaser for the yeah. news section there. I'm thrilled about it too. Uh, next up we have our art house guru. You've just heard him. He's a man who spent Back to the Future Day leaping through Grey's art house movie Almanac, a book which accurately predicted every subtitled film made between 1950 and 2015. It's even got Spectre in there, weirdly enough. It's Phil Desemlian. How are you? I'm very well. Thanks, Chris. Did you make a lot of money off that book? Very little. William Hill don't exactly take bets on whether movies have got subtitles in them, do they? <laughs> <laughs> be, they do seem to take bets on whether Luke Skywalker is going to be the new Star Wars film. Yeah, this is an interesting one, so, isn't it? Betfair and a few other places we're offering odds this week of one to five which is not a lot but basically i believe that means if you put a pound on you get 20p back mm-hmm. i think that's right on luke skywalker appearing in star wars episode seven now given that we've already seen a shot of luke admittedly his hand in the trailer plus mark hamill is second build on the poster you morons i think it's a fair bet or a bet fair if you will <laughs> to say that he'll be in the movie but you'd have to put literally like a thousand pounds on to get 200 pounds back so you're not making a lot of money plus they probably wouldn't take bets at large okay because they think you have inside information does the poster count as inside information it's outside information isn't it it depends where you put it <laughs> yeah anyway enough of that because last but not least i mentioned three colleagues of such lethal cunning we have some new young blood on the podcast upon Ooh. which we can feast until we are sated I mean, welcome please our new junior online writer who's so new i haven't figured out the sole defining characteristic with which i will torment her over the next thousand podcasts you please welcome emma thrower <laughs> hello <laughs> hello emma do we have some hello. sort of sound effect <laughs> we've never needed it before there has never been a new person dust off the klaxon helen <laughs> What would be your movie theme to introduce yourself? My movie theme? Oh, goodness. I don't know, it needs something quite exciting, but I'm such a huge movie score fan, it would probably be Clint Mansell, which is amazing, but then that's not really that excitable, is it? What, Lux Eterna? <laughs> probably. <laughs> no pressure to follow that up, then. <laughs> not at all, not at all. So what did you do on Back to the Future Day, Emma? How did you celebrate? Well, first of all, realising that if I went back or forward to the future, mm-hmm. I wouldn't exist because mm-hmm. I wasn't born in 85. <sighs> Sorry. Oh, good God. Get her out of here. (laughs) Come back, Chris. (laughs) It's all right. (laughs) Neither was I. By accident, I actually ended up watching the only episode of How to Get Away with Murder that Eric Stoltz directed, so I sort of took a (laughs) one-minute silence. (laughs) Was he replaced halfway through by Michael J. Fox? (laughs) No. It's like, I've done my shot list for the day. Sorry, sorry, mate. Michael's going to do a much better (laughs) job than you. Oh. Bless him. We just got this image in life of Eric Stoltz being replaced, whatever he does now, by Michael J. Fox halfway through. No matter what he's doing, if he's just like doing some grouting around his house, gets a tap in the shoulder, there's Michael J. Fox with a trowel. And it's like, oh God, off he goes. You again. <laughs> 
you again. You I again. I don't think anyone greets Michael J. Fox with <laughs> you again. Oh, it's you. Um, Every time Digger Scott meets Hugh Jackman, he must say two things. Oh, it's you. I'm so glad it's you. And also, can I take your order? He must. <laughs> oh. Oh, no, burn, burn, no, burn. Wrong. No, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. We have lots of love for the star of Love's Kitchen. Emma, tell us about yourself quickly before we move on to this week's question. 47 things about you. <laughs> 47 things. Well, if we're keeping it movie related. Favourite movie, go. Fight Club. Whoa. Good answer. Fight Club. Okay. Definitely. Big Oscars person. So. What does that mean? I'm crazy about award season. So if anyone follows me on Twitter, they're going to hate me for the next few months. Okay. You're an Oscar prognosticator. Okay. I am the prognosticator. That's big talk. <laughs> yes. And big, big, big on movie scores. They're my two things, I would say. Favourite movie score would be a Clint and Mansell would one. Be the yeah? Fountain. The Fountain. For sure. Definitely. Hugh Jackman. It yes. all comes back. It all again. full circle. Do Grace Scott watching it at home <laughs> crying? <laughs> it could have been me. Not that, no. It could have been me. With Eric Stoltz at the same time. They're both on the same sofa. <laughs> and then the guy of my kid comes over. Get back to work, you two. You're um, so mean. What? <laughs> it's just a so joke. Mean. It's just a joke. I've got nothing but respect and love. Let's have a question now, which has been sent in from Lee Denny on Twitter, at 19denilson82. Before we get the question, actually, I'll say last week's question was about great movie dinner scenes and the idiots that we are. We forgot some of the greatest movie dinner dinner scenes of all time Texas Chainsaw Massacre there's an amazing dinner sequence in that and Alien for the love of God Kane the <laughs> chestbuster appears immediately after they've had some light snacks I think I prefer the diner version in Spaceballs <laughs> that is pretty good there's some other ones as well obviously people have sent in their corrections in their droves they're very disappointed in us we get that we understand that but we have to move on with our lives so this week we'll be missing out a lot of stuff in relation to Lee Denny's question and his question is I watched American Psycho the other day it made me think what are the best movie scenes set in in a stairwell because obviously there's a sequence in American Psycho where Patrick Bateman drops the chainsaw down the stairwell on to let's be honest a prostitute fairly memorable sequence what else is up there in the pantheon there's a good born fight in a stairwell but I'm forgetting which film it is Identity, Identity. thank you and there was a good one in Casino Royale which I think we talked about the other week, didn't we? Not to my knowledge. Okay. Well, I talked about it with someone and we had a great time. <laughs> and there were microphones present. <laughs> and, Are and you it was... podcast moonlighting? <gasps> I would never. I have. But no. But yes, it's a great scene. It's just another fight scene in a stairwell. Clearly all my favourites are fights involving uh, uh, spies. Stop the press. Helen just suggested a Bond scene. I know, right? What's going Growing on? Growing as a person. Look at this. <laughs> Phil Cat. When you were talking about dinner parties dinner scenes did you mm-hmm. talk about Bunuel's The Exterminating Angel of I mean of course. You didn't. <laughs> of course we did I'm leaving number one it except was, I can't leave it was up there fantastic there tend to be sort of different sorts of weak differentiating between stairwells and just stairs stairwells are stairs inside yeah. a building you get down the so bo- you can't the... have the Odessa steps is what we're saying Battleship Potemkin does not count I've got one that well it's that sort of scuzzy New York sort of opening stairwell scummy bit Taxi Driver springs to mind uh-huh. the last sequence in Taxi Driver when he comes in to rescue Jodie Foster's okay. character yeah. and starts blasting. That's more of a corridor his... though, isn't it? It's, mm. like, it's more of a corridor than... No, but he's it? going up the stairs, isn't he? They, yeah. you're, you're probably, maybe you're right about that. It's not a lot of stair action. <laughs> there's stairs there, I'm sure there's stairs there. <laughs> Welcome to the Empire Podcast. <laughs> the stairs edition. All right, um, okay, okay. So stairwell, one. I think in a, in a building, because you've got stairs, I mean, Rocky running up the steps in Philadelphia, that's not, no, that wouldn't no, no, qualify no, no, here. No, no. Yes. But, for example... Vertigo at the end, Vertigo. going up the tower, that yes. would count because the stairs yes. wrap around themselves. Okay. And if they're inside a building, right. I'm saying it's a stairwell. What we have in this building is a stairwell. What Bourne goes up and then flings himself off using a body as a human shield. Gotcha. Stairwell. It's gotcha. Stairwell. Phil. Yes. <laughs> now we've established what a stairwell yes. is. Yes. What are your favourite scenes set inside 
Glad you asked. <laughs> but have you seen, we've, I think we talked about this not that long ago, William Wyler's The Heiress has an amazing final shot, Olivia de Havilland walking up the stairs with a candle whilst Montgomery Clift is banging on the door. In the context of the film, it's a great movie. I yeah. would really recommend everybody watches it. So I don't want to give away the context, but it's a very powerful moment. I think she might have won an Oscar for that role, and rightly so, but I may be wrong. That's a terrific one. I love as well, obviously, the big, the raid-type stairwell gun battles. Mm, yeah. Um, you can't go wrong with the Penrose stairs in Interception. Mm-hmm. Does that count? That counts. I'm, I'm going to say that counts. Okay, for the sake of this, yes. I'm going to say... Indoor stairs, yes. Outdoor Perfect. stairs, no. Oh, so even indoor stairs, if it's like in a foyer, which I wouldn't call a stairwell. I mean, so you could have yeah. Sunset Boulevard. You could have Sunset Boulevard. Yeah, oh. but coming down the... Yes. Yeah. And I'm going to say, for example, there's that scene in The Artist where they all come and go on the stairs, which is a real place in, in yes. LA. That always struck me as a really lovely, officially arresting scene. And the one thing I always think of when I'm on stairs, apart from Pacino practically dancing down the stairs at the end of Heat as he gets the call he is on the loose and he, you know, leaves his soon-to-be ex-wife, you know, to go and be sharp and on the edge mm. and be what he's got to be. And he goes down the stairs and he just almost glides down them. He's, he's a little tiny little man, isn't he, Pacino? Little legs, little hamster legs are running as fast as they can down the stairs. It's really lovely. You're insulting and, everyone today. Oh, it's it's Might as well. This is scorched earth policy. This Everybody's going down. <laughs> and then you have Ghostbusters, which is the one I always think of when I'm on stairs and it's not Gozer coming down the stairs at the end it's when they're climbing up the stairs in Spook Central to mm. meet Gozer mm. to have their final confrontation there's the line where do these stairs go they go up I always quote that every time I'm on stairs there is a great death scene in an old film noir set on a staircase with one of my favourite actors Richard Widmark oh, Kiss of Death, kiss of death. When, of course, he wheels this lady in her wheelchair, uh-huh. ties her to the back of it and just pushes her down the stairs. Absolute rotter. He's a real cad. He gave great cad with Mark, and that's a particularly good example. He plays a character called Tommy Udo. What about the sex mm. scene in History of Violence, if you want to get things... Ooh, a little bit saucy. Blimey, I've just had to adjust my time. I've been wearing that, one. That is actually a very good sex scene, in the sense that it is genuinely important from a plot and character perspective. It is genuinely non-gratuitous, which is not something you see yeah. every day. It's not really a stairwell, though, is it? No, it's, it's a staircase. Okay. I feel like we're pushing the definition here a little. <laughs> yeah, I'm going to take it down a notch. I'm going to go for, I like a meaty monologue. And I think in Flight, the bit where Denzel and Kelly Riley and James Badgedale all kind of come together, oh, it's yeah. completely, yeah. doesn't relate to the rest of the film particularly. It's fantastic because they just bring up all these big things about life and death and consequence. James Badgedale just pops up for seven minutes and steals the show as he tends to do so well. I think that's such a lovely moment. Yeah. Really, really love that scene. I have that down too. That's a really good scene. Good job. I think. That scene in the opening, the rest of it. There's no song called, ooh, meaty dialogue in a stairwell. (laughs) Otherwise, that would have accompanied it. (laughs) So what we're talking about Scorched Earth policy, Phil's really going for it now. Well, I think everyone would accept that some of the Robert Zemeckis music cues are a little bit on the nose. Certainly in that that film. In that that movie, yes. I'm not spreading that across his entire... Under the bridge. (laughs) Upside down plane. (laughs) (laughs) Ah, yes. Was that a Led Zeppelin tune? Yeah. And don't forget, of course, Alcoholic Pilot. That was... (laughs) Great song. What else? We've got loads of stuff. The Money Pit, that's got good stairs. Lots of good stairs in that. Psycho. Falling. Psycho, yes, of course. Death um, Becomes Her. Death I love Becomes that. Her, no yeah. Falling down the stairs. Tons and tons and tons Match of stuff. Match of Life and Death, inside or outside? No, it, it's, come on, it's outside. It's between There's one, clouds. Like, that's true. <laughs> yeah. Have indoor weather. It's all the same, isn't it? <laughs> Die Hard, of course, there's stuff on the stairs and Die Hard. The first terrorist gets killed on stairs in Die Hard. So there we go. It's all exciting and all good and we could be here all year. If you are at home screaming at your podcast listening device of choice going, why didn't they mention 
insert staircase scene here and do tweet about it and hopefully we'll mention it on next week's show but believe me it's not personal if we've left it out it's just because we're idiots and if you want to have your question read out on the Emperor Podcast then do send them in via Twitter we're at Empire Magazine use the hashtag Empire Podcast and of course you can Facebook us as well we're Empire Magazine on that and you can email us podcast at empireonline.com okay time now for movie news what's been happening this week I guess is everything's been dominated by Star Wars you're listening to this on Friday, but the trailer came out on Tuesday in this country, Monday, if you're living in the States, of course. The poster came out as well, and with it, we learned a great many things. Well, what we did when we finished shrieking and running around the room like hapless idiots, certainly. It's the best look I think we've had today. Obviously, it's the final full trailer, we're told, for the film. It gives us a little bit more to go on. It, it sort of, I guess, confirms some of what we already knew, that Finn, played by John Boyega, and Ray played by Daisy Ridley, are kind of our leads that they meet after he seems to turn his back on his past as a trooper and that they have their work cut out for them. They're going to meet Harrison Ford's Han Solo, as if I need to tell you who Harrison Ford plays in Star Wars, and Chewbacca, and then a bit of a chase through the skies in the Millennium Falcon. Squee! We did pick up a few new tidbits, didn't we? We saw that Poe Dameron, played by Oscar Isaacs, is going to get a little bit of torture happen to him. That's not good. Looks to be at the hands of Kylo Ren, played by Adam Driver. We didn't learn much about other people. We still haven't seen Lupita Nyong'o's character. We saw nothing in that of Donald Gleeson that I spotted. Mm-hmm. Very, very little of Luke and Leia. There's that one shot of what appears to be Luke, the, the metal hands, a cloaked figure. We couldn't see his face. Which was in the last trailer as well. Which was in the last trailer as well. Leia, we just see hugging Han and looking quite upset but that's all we've got so far so there's lots more to play for yeah I have to say first of all big confession that I haven't watched a trailer for maybe two nearly three years since I've watched the Star Wars trailer and for many reasons it was a huge moment for me it was obviously glorious yeah back on the trailer watching wagon a good place to start for sure okay I've got to pick up on that (laughs) what (laughs) you don't watch trailers I haven't for a long time no is this a religious thing what what is this yes it's a religious thing no I just didn't for a really long time it's a wise thing because they give away so much these days this this one doesn't which is nice it is of course now your job though exactly I would definitely avoid a job that stipulates you have to watch trailers and break (laughs) them down I always watch them after the film which is very weird but no no that makes sense that makes I'll be honest I've only seen the Star Wars trailer once and that's all I'm going to see it I'm not going to watch it again and if I'm completely honest it didn't have the running around the room screen effect that the first two trailers did on me but it still looks very very good and I'm intrigued and the reason I don't want to watch it anymore is I want to go in as cold as I can thankfully not doing any of our Star Wars coverage so I, I can do that which is good if you haven't seen it already and I'm pretty sure you have but if you haven't it is worth a watch I don't think it gives too much away I think it holds enough back that mm. it, it sort of tantalises us rather than revealing too much I don't mm. think it's one of the worst mm. offenders I really way. enjoyed it I yeah. thought it was great. I think they've done a great job with their trailer so far. They have very much. The first teaser, which you missed, <laughs> I, I can recreate for you, is phenomenal. <laughs> and every time they've given, they drip fed just a little bit more. So you feel like they've given you a healthy plateful. But really, there's a lot that they haven't shown, yeah. which is kind of fun. It's but more um, of an amuse-bouche. An amuse-bouche. Yeah. They seem like there might be a little bit of third act stuff in that trailer, potentially a final battle, yeah. a little bit of pre-battle camaraderie mm-hmm. between Oscar Isaac and John Boyega's characters. Yes. Mm-hmm. Uh, look like it might be mirroring the sort the of end battle. Yes, yeah. exactly, the hand loop moment. Lots of little tips mm-hmm. and just a really confident feeling mm. piece of promotion. And the whole thing feels confident, which yeah. bodes well. 
I like the trailer. It's interesting. It seems to definitely set out stall that the three leads are Driver and Boyega and Ridley. But obviously in the poster, because I'm a credit block nerd, Harrison Ford, Mark Hamill and Carrie Fisher are the first three names on the Mm. poster, But which of course echoes the original trilogy. And you'd expect maybe them to be up front and centre credit-wise this time Mm. around, but maybe not in actual terms of screen time. Exactly. That first Um, shot of Han just gave me a lot of hope. He just seemed like that looked like Han. It was a great shot of him, I thought. And then you see them again, him and Chewie. So it seems that Han is definitely involved, Han and Chewie, which is great because Chewie is, of course, as we all know and all agree on, the greatest character in the history of Star Wars. They are are front and centre this time around, Leia more on the sidelines and it seems to be about the search for Luke. Interesting enough, having only seen the trailer once, I haven't gone through it in forensic detail, which I tend to do with trailers for films I'm hugely excited about, but I'm trying to stay away from this one. When Han and Chewie Mm -hmm. seem to have, they're being held captive at one point or they've been taken prisoner which obviously echoes mm. Jedi and Chewie's left arm has a bandage on it a bit of mange perhaps <laughs> oh the or whatever Wookiee maximilitosis is <laughs> Han seems to be fulfilling the Obi-Wan role of like explaining the myth the mythos I hope there's not too much of that I hope they don't go too far trying to just bring everyone up to date the newbies to the franchise I don't think they will I hope not I think that's important that they do that and it seems Mm. to be that we did talk about this didn't we after the trailer came out it's like it's only been 30 years how can everyone have forgotten all this stuff happened it's only 30 years between the prequels and A New Hope and everyone have forgotten by that point and it's it's also it's a very big galaxy if they're on an either planet somewhere they haven't necessarily been keeping up with the political shifts 30s more than I am in years so you keep rubbing this and it's really not okay <laughs> but I remember everything it's cool <laughs> I think actually the poster suggested more stuff than the trailer so the poster has on it front and centre well not front and centre front and to the right back uh, and to the left back and to the left it has what looks like another Death Star and yes. I know there's been a lot of speculation people on Twitter saying it's actually a, th- a kind of third Death Star it's almost a planet that you know goes around and can destroy a lots of stuff don't want to give too much away but that's interesting that they kind of revealed that there's lots of people commenting on the parallels drawn between Kylo Ren's lightsaber on the poster and Daisy Ridley's Ray's staff which yeah. are running parallel to each other mm-hmm. and almost suggests perhaps some sort of familial link maybe but the poster actually is what sparked off this whole nonsensical is Luke Skywalker in the movie or is he not in the movie thing because he's not in the poster he's barely in the trailer but again we know that Mark Hamill was out there shooting loads of stuff for the film I just think they're going to hold look back until the movie the, the, which is great the, the smartest speculation on that I've heard is just that he looks different and that's why they're holding him back whether he's a force ghost which seems a little bit unlikely or he's in some way changed his appearance that would explain why they don't want to necessarily show him yet. Well, we know he also has a beard. They're probably not holding it back for the beard. Yeah. <laughs> but, uh, it's but, you know, some more radical change. Yeah, perhaps. I just think we're going to see him in the movie and have a nice reveal. The fact that he wasn't on the poster led to the week's nuttiest conspiracy theory. Do you guys hear about this? Are there people out there who are actually speculating that Kylo Ren is Luke Skywalker? No. Do you hear about this? That one. There's, there's quite a lot. There's, you know, not quite a lot, but a few people out there on the internet were okay. going, ah, Luke Skywalker's on the poster, you say? Well, au contraire. Luke Skywalker is on the poster because he's right there because he's Kylo Ren and he's basically done what his dad did and he's gone nuts and he's wearing a mask which I don't think is the case alright should we move on yeah. yeah from all things Star Wars should we talk about Peyton Reed coming back to direct <laughs> Ant-Man and the Wasp a Marvel story us hey so Peyton Reed could be coming back make, I hear we don't make this stuff up this is stuff that's happening out there we have to talk about I feel it. like you make it happen Chris you I personally. do make it happen so tell me about Peyton Reed well he's 5'10 no hair glasses likes long walks on the beach likes making films about ants Sounds ideal. Yeah, you'd like him. I wish you hook you guys up next time he's over in London. So he's the director of Ant-Man, obviously, which this week, I don't know if you saw this story as well, destroyed them in China. Not literally, it, didn't, it wasn't like a, a bomb or anything, but it went over there and did $43 million, which is 
huge. And China is becoming such a big part of global box office these days. So Ant-Man has gone from being the little movie that could to being the little movie that did to being actually, you know what, quite a decent sized movie. So it's made something like 450 million. By the time it's run in China, will be finished. It's probably going to hit around the $500 million mark, which for a film called Ant-Man is pretty damn good, I'd say. <laughs> and I imagine it's probably more than Marvel and Disney were expecting it to make. So obviously, we talked about this a couple weeks ago. They announced a sequel, Ant-Man and the Wasp, for 2018. And Peyton Reed's in talks to come back and direct that which is good because I think you know there was lots of obviously hullabaloo about Edgar Wright leaving Ant-Man and I still think honestly if we were all honest we'd still like to see that version see what would have would have come of it but I think Peyton Reed did a very good job I'd be intrigued to see what he can do starting from scratch with his own story rather than parachuting in as someone else's which is yeah, what happened very much at the 11th hour yeah yeah as a fellow Marvel brother slash sister in arms I have to say I'm really excited I think as you were saying for him to kind of escape from Edgar Wright's huge ant sized shadow would be great I feel that you know he totally deserved it on his own right I love the film and really excited to see what he does next and to see him earn it by himself would be amazing I think it's really exciting and also if Peña Dasmalchian is that how you pronounce Dave's name? David Dasmalchian yes and T.I. haven't been snapped up for True Detective season 3 which (laughs) they should be it'd be great to see them back because they together were absolutely incredible they're fantastic Mm -hmm. there's a lot to like about Ant-Man I think so I'd be very intrigued by that There was Edgar news this week as well, wasn't there? There was. He's ordered a ham roll. Well, I mean, it's a delicious lunch. (laughs) Or should we say a roll for John Hamm? Oh, okay. In Baby Driver, which will be his next movie, which sounds very, very exciting, about a getaway driver. And we know very little else about it other than that I think he's hoping to raise the bar on what he's capable of delivering on in terms of spectacle and and scale and and action. He's got Ansel Elgort as a getaway driver. Mm -hmm. John Hamm. John Hamm. Plays a guy Mm -hmm. who knows him. And then it's got some other people. <laughs> this is amazing, Phil. Absolutely amazing recording. You're Woodward and Bernstein in this right now. This is amazing. Yeah, yeah. Do you meet Edgar at underground car parks yeah, to get this, this information? Yeah, this is a little bit off the record in embargoes. <laughs> <laughs> we think it's going to shoot early next year. With cameras. With physical cameras. Lily James is in it as well. Yeah. And Jamie Foxx, who's a young up-and-coming actor he's who good, he's needs a bit actor. of a break. Very good things. So, yeah. Very excited about that. Wish both Edgar and Peyton Reed. All the best in their future and endeavours. Emma, yes. before we move on, yes. something's come to my attention. Okay. That you are also not just new podcast blood, but you're the new editor of the podcast. This is very true. This is true, yes. Not nerve-wracking at so all. you better fucking make me sound good, right? <laughs> Can you do that? I will try my I'm an editor, voice. not a miracle worker. <laughs> so that's very exciting. We're in capable hands. We're what incapable else? hands. <laughs> we're, we're, we're my incapable hands. I have a couple more stories, which I'll take as one because they both involve Lauren Graham from The Gilmore Girls. <laughs> And hey, you know what? There are talks. There are really exciting talks at Netflix about bringing Gilmore Girls back for a limited series of like one and a half hour episodes with all the original cast and importantly, original creator, Amy Sherman Palladino. This is really exciting for fans. This is like Star Wars Episode 7 for fans. You've got to understand this. It's huge. It's not 100% confirmed yet, but apparently everyone is willing and eager to do it. They just have to sign the deals. Hooray for that. And in other Lauren Graham news, because I know you're not going to have anything to say about that because I don't think no, you're a Gilmore I, I, fan. Isn't someone in that? Someone's in that. Melissa McCarthy. Melissa McCarthy. Melissa McCarthy. Yeah. See, I know things. You know things. <laughs> I know things. You would actually genuinely like it because I think a lot of people are put off by the girly sounding title, but it is one of the fastest, sharpest shows that has ever been on TV. An average TV script for a 45 minute show is obviously about 45 pages. A Gilmore Girls script was never less than 70 because they are so fast talking. There's so much kind of zippy dialogue back and forth. It's great. It also has Sean Gunn in it in a key role who pops up through the series. Many, many great people are in Gilmore Girls. Also, Sam from, you know, Supernatural. 
<laughs> That's exciting. Uh, in other Lauren Graham news, she is also going to be involved in an adaptation of The Royal We. Now, this is a novel that was published earlier this year, and it's written by the girls who run a website called Go Fug Yourself, which is one of the funniest sites on the web. It is about fashion, but it's hilarious. It's absolutely brilliant. And th- this book, The Royal We, is kind of a fictionalised story of essentially the Duke and Duchess of Cambridge. It's essentially how a girl without a title might marry a prince in the modern age. This one is an American girl, not Kate Middleton. So it is a fictionalised account. There is no Prince Harry, Prince William in this version of history. But it's quite fun. It's a nice little sort of chiclet book. It's by the Fug Girls and it is now being picked up for adaptation with them looking at Mae Whitman for the lead role, which I think is quite interesting casting. And Lauren Graham, who played, I think, Whitman's mother on Parenthood, the TV show, after she left Gilmore Girls, would be adapting the script. Hooray! Exciting. Yeah. That is exciting. I should say the Fug Girls are Jessica Morgan and Heather Cox. I should probably mention their actual names, but go fug yourself. If you don't read it, it's really worthwhile. I don't know what to say. It's maybe not in your wheelhouse, but it could be a very fun film. Chris is a fashionable guy. Yeah. Well, I mean, I'm not a fashionable girl, and yet I find Go Fug Yourself absolutely hilarious, so go figure. Oscars news for our new other Oscar expert. (laughs) Yeah, so we have the news that Chris Rock is returning to the stage after some questionable few years of presenters. Seth MacFarlane wasn't to everyone's taste. And poor old MPH last year, bless him, even though he is a wonderful MC, it just didn't quite come together with the writing somehow. I don't know why. Did you understand that whole envelope box thing? The end bit was the best bit of what he did, but it just all sort of happened too late. I don't know. It's very, very bizarre. It's such, yeah. a, it's such a tricky gig. It's Absolutely. a very hard job. I mean, it e- eats people alive, doesn't it? It just chews them up and spits them out. But then Ellen did it really laid back, and it just seemed to... Everybody loves Ellen, I guess, but it just seemed to work really well. But Chris Rock is coming back, which, of course, won't be controversial in the slightest. I think that's exciting. They were talking about pairing him up with Amy Schumer, mm. uh, apparently, but uh, she seemed to have said sort of pass, pass on that. <laughs> run far yeah. in the <laughs> run, other direction. There's no upside really for her, is there, in doing it? She doesn't need it, I don't think, at the moment. No, she doesn't. How did Chris Rock do last time? Yeah, he was fun. I think he was quite heavy on Sean Penn. I think that's a running yeah. thing. He wasn't... No, I don't was, think um, he was loved last time. It was time. Jude Law. He made a comment about Jude yeah. Law being Why is in he loads in of every films. Film? And then Sean Penn noted for his famous sense of humour <laughs> took the stage and went yes. for those of you who don't know Jude Law is one of our finest actors yes, yes, yes. <laughs> like trampling all over Chris Rock's punchline thanks a bunch Sean I wish they'd get Colbert but I didn't hate Chris Rock first time around so no. I'm interested to see what he can do now 10 years later yeah. absolutely Colbert must have been asked 100% sure he has been and then just said no there's tons of other things we've got a lot of stuff to get on with reviews wise so we're going to move on very quickly but it's just is anyone going to get a pair of these Nike self-lacing shoes probably not they don't sparkle enough for me I tend to have sparkly <laughs> shoes so mm-hmm. what a go fuck yourself saying about those shoes Helen. they haven't yet but I'm pretty sure they'll weigh in on the negative side Okay. Emma, you're probably too young to remember shoes but they're <laughs> things that people used to wear on their feet back in the ancient times Okay. The dark okay. days before the empire. Thank you. I think you find your one thing you're going to beat her over the head with for the next thousand podcasts. <laughs> what? That she's young. That she's young. <laughs> yeah. And full of life and vitality. <laughs> and will outlive me we will crush by her. minimum 20 to 30 years. Sorry. Well done, Emma. <laughs> 
Let's move on. Time now for this week's guest. Kari Fukunaga is one of the most interesting directors around. He exploded onto the scene with Sinombra a few years ago. He followed it up with a very gloomy, moody, mysterious Jane Eyre. Then he redefined what was possible on television by directing the entire first season of True Detective, six and a half minute tracking shot and all. He's breaking ground once again with Beasts of No Nation, which is a harrowing epic starring Idris Elba that's launching on Netflix. Netflix and chill alongside a small cinematic release. Small cinematic release and chill. He came into London recently and we sent another relative pod newbie, Ian Nathan. He's not a newbie, he's potted before. He's potted before, he's never been on this pod. Uh, Ian Nathan, if you don't know, let's try and put him in terms of the magazine, in terms you'll understand, context of the magazine, in terms you'll understand. Uh, he is Grant Moff Tarkin. Yes. Yeah. Essentially. Grant Moff Tarkin didn't do the Death Star podcast a lot. But now and again, if a guest came along who was worthy, he would break out the cheekbones <laughs> and go and talk to them. Okay. Yeah? Yeah. I mean, sure. Yeah? Yeah. Okay. You've kind of pushed that analogy off the bridge. <laughs> but yes. You've kind of force choked it to death. Do not be honest. so proud of this technological terror you've constructed. I don't know what I'm doing anymore. Here we go. Ian Nathan talking to Carrie Fukunaga. Do enjoy. I saw the film last night and I came away very moved and quite shaken, which I presume is a kind of expected response. What kind of responses people had to the film? As the director, you know, my, my friends who have seen the film or critics who have talked to me about the film, it's very hard to hear it with any sort of objectivity. And oftentimes, usually when you hear nice things about your movie, you, you immediately reject it and you're just waiting to hear a negative. <laughs> That's just the, the probably the, the cynical filmmaking side of it. I do think that in general, people have been moved by the film. I don't know what that means in terms of like the craft, but which is usually my focus. But in terms of the emotional impact, I think especially from Abraham Attar's performance, really been affected. Did you have a sense of when you chose to do the project, what kind of emotional response you were looking for in an audience? Because you're asking quite a lot of them. It is harrowing. I don't know if, if I had set out with a goal in terms of how people would feel at the end of the movie. What I did know is the experience of it that I was going for, the experience of seeing this fun loved, mischievous child have everything taken away from him and be indoctrinated into a fighting force that would strip away his innocence and still come through that with, even if just a small glimmer of his humanity, still intact. When did you first come across the story? Is it something you've, you've wanted to do for a while? Or? I believe the novel came out in 2004. Right around right. then. I read it in 2005, towards the end of the year. It was given to me by a friend of mine who was in the Peace Corps in Guinea, who I'd been to West Africa with prior to doing a research trip in Sierra Leone about that war in 2003. That's when I went. That's not when the war was. I read the novel and I was immediately taken with the simplicity of the approach, which was a first person you know, from Agu's perspective, almost stream of conscious tale about his experience being a soldier and what he felt like as a soldier and how he questioned whether he was still a good person or not. I had been working on writing a feature film that I think delved far more into the complexities of how these conflicts happen and how the wars were affecting the general population. But there was something about this book that to me was far more effective. And so I immediately went to work to see if I could option it and turn it into a movie. That was almost 10 years ago. Yeah. So I've been working on this thing for a long time. Were there key ingredients for that serendipity of why it happened now? I mean, was Idris an important factor in getting it made? You know, I think the movie would have been effective had I made it 10 years ago. It would it would be a different movie. Yeah. I've learned my craft in different ways. I've been focusing on different things at this point in my life. Had I made the movie 10 years from now, it would also be different. So this is a representation of me now making this movie, but also if you're a fatalist, then it was the right time to make the movie as well. Idris was definitely a big part in getting it financed, but a large component to getting these things made is the foreign sales aspect of it. For anyone you know in the nuts and bolts side of how you get these independent films made, that's like a big part. And you're, oftentimes you're struggling with financiers who are looking at foreign 
foreign sales in terms of the actors that are involved, yeah, what their yeah. value is. And sometimes it's outdated. The actors that are actually worth something abroad are, are no longer necessarily people that the directors are that interested in working with because new talent is always somehow interesting and more interesting or there's less of, I guess, a precedent for the kind of roles they take. Idris, he was a movie star by the time we were making this movie. Still, I don't think he moved the needle in the way that he's moving it now in terms of financing. So I'm not really sure how the producers really were able to get the amount of money to make this movie. It seemed nearly impossible. And by the time we were in pre-production, you know, boots on the ground in Ghana, we were already a million dollars over budget. <laughs> so yeah. they were asking me to cut days, cut down the script. I mean, it was not an easy film to make by any means. Yeah, I did notice that Idris was a producer. What did that mean? Did he contribute beyond the, the startling performance he gives? It's sort of a trend now, especially with these smaller films, to share the producing credit with the actors because the actors are also aware that their name could yeah. lend value to the film. And it's true. Idris was sort of key in, on a couple points. It was not necessarily the financier's first objective to shoot in West Africa. They were definitely pushing South Africa, which is a, a long-running infrastructure and a, and a pretty robust film and commercial industry. And they were even suggesting Kenya as an option until the attacks on the mall in Nairobi. In fact, we were scouting in Nairobi right. when those attacks occurred. That took Kenya off the table, and it actually made it more possible to shoot in West Africa as a sort of one of the last options outside of South Africa. So Idris was really key because being half Ghanaian, his mother is from Ghana, he had contacts within the country who had influence with some of the ministers that we needed to become friendly with to make our production more affordable. So that's access to the military, access to the finance ministers in order to bring equipment in and out and avoid the heavy import-export taxes, sometimes up to 20%. So it becomes almost yeah. like a tax rebate once she gets those things. We were able to cut down our budget to a point where it was it seemed plausible, but still a challenge. But Idris definitely made those connections happen, and we called that Operation Black Star when we were in the prep phase. It seems startling that you got this performance out of Abraham, who's the center of the film. It's just two things. A, how did you find him? And B, how do you coach a young actor like that through some of the scenes you're going to put him through, the education in a way he's got to learn to interpret that character? Once we decided we were shooting in Ghana, we knew that we'd be doing most of our casting there. We didn't really have the money to fly people in from other countries and put them up. We knew that the kid who was going to interpret this role and the kids were going to be the other, the small boy unit, the child soldier unit of the battalion would be coming from Ghana and most likely they would be non-actors because the, although there is a sort of a music video and a Nollywood-like television industry in Ghana, similar to Nigeria, not on the level that we needed, I think, for this film and the yeah. style of acting that I needed for this film. And we also just couldn't hold auditions like you normally would. We actually had to go out into the community and find kids that we thought were charismatic and who could perform on the camera and come alive in front of the camera, which is already a rarefied skill. We went to football pitches, to civic centers, into every school you could imagine, church groups, orphanages, just trying to find kids. Harrison Nesbitt, our casting director, probably saw 600 plus kids and then I'd watch tape on a lot of them, the ones that he would sort of filter down. And eventually we settled on about 30 kids that we gathered at this hotel and did like a two-week intensive acting workshop with. And I knew that I had to find my main cast out of those kids and sort of put them to the rigors in terms of improvised scenes that mimicked what was happening in the screenplay. Some of the darker stuff, some of the lighter, funner stuff towards the beginning. For me, the sort of the center of the film, which is the his interaction with the aid worker at the end of the movie. And Abraham sort of embodied a lot of what I was looking for. And that's how you get that performance. You don't necessarily find a kid who acts 
like somebody else. You find a kid who sort of naturally is, or we can at least project, you know, his experience onto him. And Abraham has one of those faces, one of those styles of speaking that his experience somehow, almost in an Eisensteinian way, feels amplified. And he also has those eyes that sort of are wise beyond their years. You go for broke in some of the scenes. Where did you kind of want to set the level of what you were going to depict, what you were not going to depict? You know, where did it lie? Uh, so you mean in terms of the violence, the level yeah, of violence? Yeah, in terms of... Or the scale. I was quite startled at a couple of points, and probably in a very powerful way. You don't hold back, I suppose, is the point. Violence is a tricky thing, especially when it comes to how much you show in a movie. In all my research of conflicts and wars, what I've sort of felt like over the years is that movies don't really get to the heart of how gruesome uh, war really is. And even movies that pretend like they're anti-war films are usually quite the opposite and being very jingoistic and celebratory of bravery and violence. For me, it was important that especially because we're treading on the subject of child soldiers and that juxtaposition of innocence and extreme violence, that we show violence as hopefully as realistically as possible. But I also had to be wary of losing my audience. We can't really abuse the audience in that sense. I definitely hold back in terms of the level of barbarity or gruesomeness, but I don't hold back in terms of when there is violence, either indicating it visually on screen or off screen in a way that you would feel it in your gut. But it's definitely not as bad as it could have been. Tell me about the shoot, because I've read a few things around it, that it was pretty tough. You're in West Africa. It's an extreme environment. You're making quite an extreme story under the pressures of budget. People went down ill, which is quite common in West Africa for people arriving there. Apparently Idris nearly fell off a cliff at one point. How hard did it get? People got sick. Vaccinations is a big part of bringing people who aren't from Ghana into the country for their own safety, of course. And that complicates things as well. If you lose people from sickness or injury, it's going to take weeks to get people into the country because it, sometimes vaccinations take time to even settle before you're allowed to bring people in. And malaria is a big component there. It's, malaria is probably one of the most dangerous killers in Africa, period, or around the world. It kills more people, I think, than almost any other disease. Prophylactics are a big part of protecting people. Yeah. But even then, three of our crew got malaria while we were shooting. Our props guy got dysentery. There was physical injuries just due to the conditions, the location, the heat, the humidity. We were shooting in the rainy season, but that does not mean it cools off trailblazing in a way, shooting in a country that's not used to being the host for film production. Things that you take for granted, like lodging and food and transport, become major challenges. It really does feel like a Fitzcarraldo-like uh, endeavor. What it means really is that every day, the little hours you have to accomplish your film get compacted. And it means that every day you're cutting things, you're rushing, you're trying almost like you're not, your stomach's in a knot the entire time, questioning whether you're going to make it through the production or even that day and you're, you just think you're at least i thought you know we're on a sinking ship i haven't at the end of the day just thought there needs to be a documentary crew here just so that there's something to be salvaged if this all falls apart but did some of that cross over the line and feed into the tension within the film do you find the making of can sort of make its way into the finished product i think that's a symbiotic relationship yeah. and the way the film is made and the way the film is produced inevitably the energy the intensity crosses over into the feeling of the actual production towards the end of the day when we were losing our last light in ghana is almost on the equator and so that means that there's this thing we call magic hour towards the end of the day of filmmaking and usually in most locations it could last anywhere from 30 minutes up to an hour and it's the most beautiful light in ghana magic hour is about 15 minutes if even that if you're lucky when the light starts to fade 
you never see people rush faster than that. And everyone understands what that means because yeah. as soon as it gets dark, we're not shooting anything anymore. For the most part, there's mainly shot in daylight. That urgency, really. We got more done in that last hour of a day than any other part of the day. And some of our best material was shot then. It's like a look in everyone's eyes. It's like the monkeys on the beach. Like everyone suddenly realizes, holy crap, we better get our shit together. Otherwise, we're not going to be able to get through our day. We would get incredible takes that time period. And crew, cast, extras, everyone working in unison. Can I ask a bit about um, Netflix's involvement? Obviously, there's been quite a lot of talk around the changing nature of distribution and the fact that the film will sort of come out simultaneously in cinemas and video on demand. Have you had to make your peace with that or is that something you're actually quite excited by? I think I probably feel differently about it every day. Some days I'm excited about the potential. Other days I'm just sort of like, yep, this is the fact. This is what's happening now. This is the way cinema is going, especially for films of these nature, which don't necessarily find their way into the cinema or even into production for that matter. I'm excited because I think every few years or decade and a half, the system needs to be shaken up. And it's a good thing. It's a scary thing for everyone involved because no one knows where their future lies. But right now, the system as it's designed isn't really conducive to creativity or to unique storytelling. And if I think Netflix is able to enable more bold subject matters to be made into film and then find outlets for it to be shown, not just on Netflix, but also in cinemas, because I think they'll have a hard time getting directors to sign over completely into just doing streaming. But if they're able to like find an outlet for these films to be experienced collectively as the cinema experience is at its best, it'll completely change the kind of films that are being made. Not necessarily like we're talking about a reinvention of genre, but it just means it'll make it much more diverse than it is right now. Do you have concerns, purists inside you think everything's got to be seen on that lovely big screen and no, even my first film, which came out in cinemas six years ago, most people have experienced that film after it was in cinemas and have still enjoyed it and appreciate it, even though I still feel like the cinema experience of whatever I work on is superior to the laptop or home theater version of it. The fact that people are still watching the film is important to me. And the fact that most people will probably not see in the cinema is just something you have to accept, yeah. whether it had had a traditional release or not. And of course, you've worked on True Detective Television is making its own claims on being as cinematic as movies are. It's an interesting debate now. When you go into either thing, Beasts or True Detective, does your approach change? Does your mindset change? Or is it just, this is the story I want to tell? Yeah, television has changed. And it's changed in a way that the press that I do for True Detective isn't dissimilar from the press that I do for a movie. We're talking to the same outlets. It's just as much audience participation in the subject, no matter what format it's coming out in. In terms of execution, it definitely doesn't change the way I shoot because even for True Detective, knowing that it would never necessarily be shown in cinemas, I shot it as if I was shooting a movie. And that was with the encouragement of the executives I was working with at HBO. And also, by example, you know, I watched Boardwalk Empire, I watched Game of Thrones, and I don't think any of those shows really reduce the ambition of scale. I mean, even if you look at the last season of Game of Thrones, there's these incredible overhead shots of these battle scenes. The people yeah. are tiny specks on the screen and the cavalry charges, and, and that's very cinematic and knowing that it's made for the HBO audience. So when you start a project, do you automatically think, I think this is a movie, do you have a kind of an internal discussion where you think, hey, actually, I prefer to go the TV route this time because it's just more versatile? That part of it yeah. is different. The pace of storytelling. There are stories that could be done as a short film, as a commercial. There are stories that could be told both as an eight-hour mini or as a two-hour film, and it changes how you treat the subject matter. A lot of book adaptations, for example, as you're reading them, you're like, oh, this would be so great as a miniseries, although would probably never be made as a miniseries. It's not that one is better than the other because just because you have more time doesn't mean you have more money per minute of screen time. So your budget for a miniseries might be the same budget you had for a two-hour film, and you'll be able to get more production value in that two-hour film 
but have less time to tell the story. So it's a balancing of scales in terms of what you want and what's important to you out of that story. When I'm reading things, I have to think about is it the character I'm really in love with and the details of their world? Therefore, could it be a longer format story or is it really just like the overall impact that's best sort of consumed in a two-hour burst? Some things I'm not even sure on and I just have to decide based on who I know will probably finance it. Did you miss not doing season two of True Detective or were you happy to let it go? I was happy to let it go. It was never my intention to do more than one season. When we pitched the show to the various networks, it was with the idea that after I did this first season as an anthology series, then a new director would take on the second season, a new director on the third season, and you'd have this bookshelf volume of basically miniseries. It was very easy to let go and to move on to my next projects. Have you seen it yet? I have not seen it yet, no. Just really about along those lines, I know you struggled with getting it into production. I know you can't really talk about it, but are you finding that studios, certainly in a cinematic sort of realm of the studios, are less versatile, less willing to pick up a strong vision that clearly you want to bring to films than maybe a, a TV station or someone like Netflix? Is it that clear cut now? I don't know if it's that clear cut because I do think there are visionaries within the studio system. There are highly intelligent people within the studio system trying to get good films made, but you're just dealing with a much larger machine and a much different approval process, which means that there is a general sort of whitewashing of subject matter. Things that are going to be a financial risk probably won't make it to pre-production or to the green light. I don't think vision is the issue. I think studios appreciate clarity of vision. It's just a matter whether that vision falls in line with their plan. Okay, thank you. Thank you. I haven't heard the interview, but I'm, I'm sure that it was very good. I'm sure it was. Chris, He's one he? of our fit directors, isn't he, yeah. Helen? The great unwritten feature of Empire History. Yes, <laughs> and it shall remain that way. Yes, it shall. Although the list is constantly growing. It Have is. Have you noticed this? Yeah, there's a lot of fit directors. What a lot of, say? they're really hot directors out there. Peyton Reed. <laughs> Peyton Reed. He's 5'10". <laughs> and he enjoys cashmere sweaters. Cuddly. He enjoys cuddling puppies yes. and the music of the stereophonics. <laughs> oh. I wish well, that were true. <laughs> You'll have oh. a nice day when you say hello to Mr. Peyton Reed. Right, let's talk about some reviews now. Sadly, we're not going to be reviewing Jaws 19 this week because Max Spielberg apparently can't be arse making it. So instead, we're going to start with the 24th Bond film, Spectre. Phil. Yes. Is it spectacular? Oh, Lord. Or still should doing that Sam one? Mendes. <laughs> have gone to Spectre Savers. <laughs> so this one, Bond 24, it picks up in Mexico City. I think everybody knows that's where the film starts. The sort of setup for this one very much is designed to tie together all of the Daniel Craig Bonds, but at the same time paying nods and homages to lots of the Bonds of years gone by. So there's a big train sequence that reminds you of From Russia With Love. There's a bit in the desert that reminds you of The Spy Who Loved Me. There's lots of moments, and I think Sam Mendes has become kind of a master at weaving in, if not very, very specific nods, then at least to sort of bits that make you think, oh yeah, that reminds me. So you do feel like you're in a Bond movie. I think where this one struggles, and I'm going to sort of avoid talking too much about the plot because yeah. we don't want to ruin that for people. We will but have I think, a spoiler special at some point. Yeah, we will. We'll get into the, the nitty gritty. But I think where this one perhaps falls down is more so than Skyfall, which I thought did this quite well, is marrying the gritty, hard, hardened Daniel Craig bond and all that emotional baggage that we've had introduced over the last three films and marrying it with all the kind of like cheeky nods. Sometimes it pays off really nicely. There's a great sofa gag in the opening sequence in Mexico City, which I think got a good response. There's a lovely sea bomb joke, which perhaps not expected from a bomb movie but sometimes you're a bit like it seems a bit uncertain of its tone i think i also struggle a little bit with the plot machinations should i say basically you've got specter this organization run by the very shadowy literally uh, oberhauser played by christoph waltz keith shadow dave shadow yeah Um, we meet them in rome reasonably early on in a really really cool reveal which leads into an even cooler car 
chase through the streets of La Dolce Vita, it's home turf. And the idea is that this organisation wants to control information and, and parallel to that is this kind of government bureaucracy that's potentially threatening to terminate MI6. Bond has a very personal and very professional reason to go rogue and go after the root cause and the root conspirators of this particularly heinous organisation. There's some really, really cool sequences in this film. I just felt that it ran out of steam quite fast in the second half. I enjoyed the opening two locations. Beyond that, it seemed to slightly lose its way, lost its sort of sense of assurance, and that assurance ran really strongly through Casino Royale and and Skyfall as well. specifically Casino Royale. In this case, it just seemed to lose its identity a bit and towards the end, it shrank in scale and and shrank in conviction and it didn't really seem to know what its payoff was. It was setting things up and leaving things behind and characters were being jettisoned and some characters were given very little screen time, very little sort of substance and definition. All in all, it just found it a little unsatisfying for me, but with great standout moments and a really ordinary theme song. And I didn't really (laughs) like the opening credit sequence, especially after the Skyfall one, which I thought was fantastic and it was laden with kind of details about the film itself this one was just a basically like some sort of seafood buffet I with think, an octopus I think there was meant to be very much clues as to the film's plot in this one it's certainly not as pretty I think it's probably fair to say oh. although it's interesting that you had in the opening sequence you have topless Daniel Craig before you see any you know, hmm. naked, writhing silhouettes of women, which was a bit unusual. It's an opening sequence that put me in mind of the Alan Partridge okay. breakdown, The Spy Love Me, oh, bit of bush. It's a little bit like that. I think it's a, probably the weirdest title sequence in years because basically you've got a massive, great big, I don't have to give too much away, but if you're a fan of octopuses, you'll love it. Yeah, yeah. the, the uh, title sequence is for all octopus lovers out there. I mean, it's just... I've just come back know. from Japan and I was just thinking, that just reminded me a lot of being at the fish markets. <laughs> It just made me slightly hungry. I didn't really do much in terms of setting up the movie for me. Reminded me a little bit of the opening credits from Finch's Girl with a Dragon Tattoo. Yeah, I thought that. Which was a lot more impressive, I thought, and a lot more punchy. Mm. This one just felt a little underpowered. All right, we'll maybe get into that in our spoiler special when we're talking about details of the film in great depth. Very quickly about this one, I thought the first hour of this was magnificent. The second hour and a half was less so but it still had a lot of great things in it. Mm. I think there's a fight scene between Bond and someone else. I mean, if you've seen the trailer, you know who it is. Bond and someone else that is clearly reminiscent of From Russia With Love, but yeah. I think it takes a dump in From Russia With Love's fight scene from a great height. And, and that's a great fight scene between, you know, Robert Shaw and Sean Connery. This is fantastic. Interesting. Um, I think there's a Jaws reference in that fight scene you're talking about. I think there is, yes. Um, just bring it back But to you think Robert Jaws Shaw. the film rather than Jaws the I character? I mean, Jaws the film rather Jaws than the Jaws the character. Yeah. Yeah. There is. The first hour is magnificent. The first shot is the most confident shot I can remember in Bond history. And I think it's a shot born of confidence of a director who's just made a billion with his last <laughs> movie. Mm. It's also, we were just talking about this, Phil and I, he did a fantastic piece on the site last year where cinematographers chose their favourite shot of all time. Mm-hmm. And about 90% of cinematographers <laughs> all mentioned the same shot from Soy Cuba. And it's basically riffing on that. Yeah, mm-hmm. So if you seek out, it's actually on YouTube, I mm. think we find the particular shot. If you look up I Am Cuba on YouTube, you'll see the shot that I think they're deliberately referencing Fantastic. in that moment. But it's great cinematography from the, point to point. Am I right thinking there was an homage at one point to Lawrence Arabia as well? It was a, a mirage, car coming yeah. out of the desert. <laughs> it was sort of... doesn't take 20 minutes. It, no, no. But, I said, yeah. I, I turned to the guy, my friend who I was with, and I said, it's Lawrence Arabia. And he said, I hope it doesn't take eight minutes. <laughs> like, because it is that sort of film. He, he lets the shots play out. The camera, he holds the camera on sequences much longer than you'd expect from mm. a sort of an action film, which lends it almost sort of makes me feel almost like a drama at times. Mm. And when you throw in all the psychological stuff, you're a bit like, it was, could become like a sort yeah. of psych drama but in the second half that starts to play against it it starts to slow it down and it's a bit long second half becomes a bit more of a generic Bond film 
and I don't really think it does a lot to elevate the sequences that we've seen before. If you know, I can't talk about it too much. But mm. yeah, it's basically I think since Casino Royale, they've been slightly rolling back from the Bourne model that they took for that film and reintroducing Bond elements. Most obviously, of course, prior to tonight in Skyfall, which kind of took from classic Connery moments, and I felt like this delved a bit more into Moore as mm. well. I mean, Daniel Craig's talked about how he wanted to get a little bit of that lightness in it, and he did, and it doesn't sit particularly well with all the Craiginess. It didn't feel like a smooth transition from one to the other through the film. It felt like it was pinballing between the two, and that sat very, very awkwardly for me. I also would say Leia Sadu's Bond girl, who is the only Bond girl who gets any relevant screen time, has hints of being really interesting. She has hints of starting off like Vesper Lind, and has hints of that same sort of sense of damage and that same sense of wariness, which make her really intriguing, but it doesn't then kind of go anywhere once again, you know? I think we were so super spoilt with Skyfall as well. It's not about comparing. Nothing felt like a surprise, again, not like it should, but I just feel you're always kind of expecting now there to be some huge thing. But it kind of gave room for me to kind of enjoy more of the performances. You can kind of concentrate on Wishaw, who feels like he's been part of it forever. Mm. He's superb. And Dave Bautista lapping up every second of Hmm. his screen time. He's fantastic. But yeah, no, I just... It's challenging for a Bond film. I mean, it's really hard to sit down a right Bond film now because you've got all the Bourne-type movies, Mission Impossible, which kind of echoes a little bit. And then then you've got, like... essentially the same plot. Rogue Nation, very, very similar plot, Uh, exactly. Which I imagine, I think I've said this before in the podcast, but it wouldn't surprise me if that's one of the reasons they brought Rogue Nation forward. Maybe. Because if it came out two months after Bond and it treads a lot of the same things, so you have an organisation that's trying to shut down the IMF here, you have an organisation trying to shut down the double O programme. There are other overlaps as well. I really like a lot about it. The performance is great. Ben Wishaw is fantastic. Daniel Craig, I think, is as comfortable in Bond's skin as he ever has been. If this is his last film as Bond, it's a bit of a shame. I'd like to see what he would do with one more old gunslinger type Bond film, maybe. It looks beautiful. Heute van Heutemann, as Helen said, does a great job. There's a great opening shot, obviously, but a couple of great shots in Rome. Monica Bellucci. Yeah. There's a beautiful shot going through her apartment, which is very, very nice. It looks very, very nice all the way through. We haven't mentioned Christoph Waltz as the the big bad, Franz Oberhauser. I think we don't want to get into him too much. I will say they introduce him as a quietly sinister force. He is not someone who has to shout to get his message across, which I guess immediately establishes him as a power to be reckoned with. He literally, you can see people reacting to the slight tilt of a head when he makes it, which gives you an idea of the level of authority he wields very, very casually, which was interesting. But he is a little bit eccentric I think in that how he then develops the character or how the character develops and it didn't always work for me but yeah there's a lot to like about this I don't think it quite hits the heights of Skyfall or indeed Casino Royale but it's much better than Quantum of Solace and is a very solid I think an enjoyable Bond adventure it has a lot of really great scenes actually weirdly enough the action scenes for me mostly didn't tick my boxes but the dialogue stuff did so that's a, a rarity in Bond Kim Newman reviewed it for us he gave it four stars so there you go that is Spectre it's out on Monday where I think it'll be trying to break the record for opening week in the UK and may well bally well do it as well and if you want to hear more about Spectre we will have a spoiler special with Sam Mendes spilling the beans on all the stuff that we've been skirting around in the interview and in the magazine and all kinds of other stuff as well now that won't be out until after the film is out in the States out of respect to people who haven't seen it in the States because there's obviously there's a lot of stuff to talk about spoiler wise here we don't want to ruin it for anyone but it's not in the States until November 6th I think So the spoiler special will be up on November 9th. That may change, but do keep your eyes out and ears, indeed, for the Spectre spoiler special. Right, should we move on to Beasts and No Nation? 
Yes, yeah, so this is an adaptation of the book of the same name, Kari Fukunaga obviously directing. And it's the story of a young boy called Agu who lives in an unnamed African state and he is swept up in a civil war that rolls over his town. People either flee before it, some people are killed, uh, including his father, and Agu is left running for his life basically into the jungle where he is picked up by the commandant who is Idris Elba and his forces of very young two-child soldiers. Some of them have grown up into their late teens and might be considered adults, but basically child soldiers he is indoctrinated into their ranks essentially brainwashed into becoming one of them and it's his story of how that happens why that happens how that could happen and how he can if he can find his way back to something approaching normality it's a hard watch this is not an easy film by any standard but it is a very very good one Abraham Atta who plays Agu is absolutely astonishing young actor really great performance I mean for me he's better performance than Idris Elba just because he's you know so unexpected and so natural Idris Elba having said that is you know spot on as the commandant who receives this almost religious awe from his troops and is is held in such complete authority over them but equally himself is not quite so all-powerful as he would like to appear and you see that when he begins to interact when they come out of the jungle and he begins to interact with other growing up officers it's a very very as I say very tough film at times but it's one that's very much worth watching Mm. I think and portrays the reality of a horrific and and it is an extreme situation this is not what you know all of Africa's like knows but it is what happens in some war-torn parts of the world and it is worth knowing about oscar i wouldn't rule it out i would be a little surprised because i think it's a strong season this year if it got too much but if they did something like put atta up for supporting actor i think he could get a nod and of course it has the next bond indeed big driss oh i thought you meant abraham atta okay sure no (laughs) interesting direction young james bond would be fine young james bond that'd be interesting uh four stars yeah Four Stars Down for Beasts of No Nation, which is out on Netflix right now. You, you can watch it while listening to this podcast. That would be stupid. Pause one and then watch the other. Do whatever. So there we go. Beasts of No Nation also out this week. We have Finn Diesel hunting witches. We do. In The Last Witch Hunter. So Vin Diesel, after a witch curses him, he's kind of granted or blessed with eternal life, which isn't great for him. And we keep seeing flashes of his life as he does the Russell Crowe thing and tries to, you know, get back to his his wife and child, all the cornfield imagery, all that kind of stuff. And uh, he ends up in modern day New York and he's paired up with Michael Caine, as you do. And they have to try and figure out how to stop what then becomes a huge witch takeover of New York, really. Of course, it happens all the time. Absolutely. It's an odd mix of a film. You've got people like Michael Caine and Elijah Wood, Game of Thrones, Rose Leslie. Although they sort of have fun together, the audience never quite gets to have the same fun. It's a bit Da Vinci Code-ish at times. It deals with a lot of things to do with the church. You've got people like Joseph Gilgan turning up, who is always a cracking villain, but he's sadly very wasted. And it's a huge labour of love for Vin because it's based on his Dungeons and Dragons character, Melkor. (laughs) But he's always so watchable, but it just never, never really comes together unfortunately i mean this was a weird one to me because like you know i'm always down for a ridiculous vin diesel film but this feels like it was picked up from 1985 and dropped in the present day like this is the kind of you know it it actually opened about the future day oh there you go you (laughs) see that's what happened martin mcfly wasn't the only visitor from the 80s that day i'm saying there we go (laughs) good point helen what did we give it we gave it two. It has got some nice sort of sporadic fantasy touches and if it maybe had run with those a little bit yeah. more, it just never quite decides what it yeah. wants to be. Throws a lot at the wall, but not Doesn't all stick. Mm. Diesel Power gets two stars. They should just call it Diesel Power and just be done with it. And very, very quickly, Helen, because people are banging yep. on the door demanding to be let in. Mississippi Grind. I really like this, actually. It's Ben Mendelsohn, who is terrific. He plays a compulsive gambler called Jerry and he is sort of essentially picked up in a bar by Ryan Reynolds. We've all had that dream. <laughs> 
Well, <laughs> maybe not all of us. Some of us had that reality, <laughs> Helen. And Ryan Reynolds plays this very, very charming guy called Curtis who tells him about a high-stakes poker game down in New Orleans and they set off down the Mississippi planning to win the stakes for this poker game as they go and win big and pay off all, all Jerry's debts and you know they're going to be best friends and everything's going to be peachy. It's fair to say that doesn't always go to plan and this is one of the most tense films I can remember because I was literally biting my nails over the turn of a card and the throw of a dice and I was so mm. upset because I'm like oh Jerry mm. you're a loser. I know I told you you're a loser. I actually thought it was a really good character piece really good work by Reynolds but obviously it's men film and he carries it. I'm really intrigued to see this film. This is co-directed by the co-writers of Half Nelson, yeah. Anna Boden and Ryan Flack. Yeah. Great job they do with Ed. But you can stick Ben Mendelsohn in anything you like Pretty and much. I would watch it. Yeah, he was great in Slow West He's earlier the, in the, the year. the modern day Richard Widmark for me. <laughs> <laughs> and Ryan Reynolds is great as well. Yeah. And it, Ryan Reynolds too. I think yeah. it, it, he kind of subverts his own too charming image here and I think that works really well. So mm. yeah, I really liked it. Fantastic. Well done indeed. Ryan Reynolds also very funny on Twitter. Mm. And you get a sense that unlike a lot of big stars, he actually is twi- typing the tweets himself, uh, which you don't always get. Right. So four stars. Yeah. Four stars for Mississippi Grind. And that is it for this week's big releases. And that's it for this week's Empire podcast, which was brought to you by O2's Go Think Big. Don't forget to go to gothinkbig.co.uk for more info. Join us next week for more film-related fun. We'll be joined by Nicholas Holt, star of obviously X-Men, Mad Max, and the upcoming Kill Your Friends. You know what? He's even come up with a new podcast jingle. What a lovely man. Only four notes, but still, it's a jingle. We'll take it. Until then, it's goodbye from Phil. Goodbye. It's goodbye from Helen. Diddly. It's goodbye from Emma for the first time. Adios. How was it? It was good. It was good. Yeah? Yeah, I'm feeling it's a safe place. It's a safe place. There's a lot of love in this room. <laughs> a lot of love in this room. And perhaps next time I'll put my trousers on and, you know, we, Helen's, we Helen insists on that. It's kind of never going to happen. And of course, it's goodbye from me. I'm off to tap Eric Stoltz in the shoulder and then replace him with Michael J. Fox in whatever endeavour he's doing that day. Poor guy. See you next week. Thank you.